I'm Claire. And I'm Liz. And this is The Balancing Act, a podcast where we talk about law, life, and everything in between. Welcome back to The Balancing Act. This is episode 34, which is the second part to the prior episode where Liz and I finished discussing bias and discrimination in the legal profession, legal community, and justice system. Another thing is, in general, for me personally, court staff has always been beyond nice to me and amazing. And I, you know, I haven't had any issues with me personally. And same with like the, you know, judges in general. And that is quite possibly because I am a white woman. But I know that you know, sometimes I've had clients who are nervous to even go to court because they're, you know, worried about how they might be treated by the system, judicial staff. You know, if if someone is, you know, married to someone, for example, who might wear a hijab, you know, there have been situations where clients have been nervous about going to court. Has that has that been an issue at all for you, Claire? Yeah, I would say I've had cases where, you know, either my client is wearing the hijab or is the other the other party is wearing a hijab. And I have seen a shift even in the eight mm-hmm. years that I've been practicing to kind of more awareness mm-hmm. and acceptance from assuming if you wear a hijab, you you don't you don't understand English, you don't understand the process and you're being mm-hmm. oppressed to like, oh, you're just another mm-hmm. person. And so I think that that, that is improving, mm-hmm. but I think that those biases, especially in, in yes. some counties are, that are still lacking. I think some counties have come farther than yes, others I, with yes. that level of cultural awareness. Mm-hmm. Which is good, but we still have we still have a ways to go to get where where people feel safe and comfortable and like they won't be judged mm-hmm. or have all these assumptions piled on before they even open their mouth. Yes. And so as an attorney, what do you do if you have a client who has those concerns? Like what and I don't know if you have any suggestions for that. I think the first thing is to always validate those concerns, mm-hmm. right? So even if sometimes I think, well, why would you think that? That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? <laughs> There's a reason they think <laughs> that's that not way. my experience. Yeah. yeah. They're probably, you know, concerned about that because that has happened to them or, you know, it happened to a friend or a family member. Mm-hmm. And so their concerns are not just because they're not the same concerns that I have doesn't mean they're not valid. Yeah. And a hundred percent based in truth and accuracy. So I think validating the concern as opposed to like brushing it off and being like, oh, don't worry about mm-hmm. it. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Well, it might be fine for me as the white lady, but that doesn't mean that it's fine for yeah. <clears throat> my client who's who's not a white lady or who wasn't raised in Minnesota or who hasn't gone to court, mm-hmm. you know, many times. Right. This might be the first time they're in an American court system or in the court system at Uh all, period. And so I think validating the concern 
And then really trying to figure out, working with the client to figure out a good solution. And so maybe that solution is, you know, me coming to court early to to be with them, yeah. you know, and to make sure that that, that is alleviated mm-hmm. or to see if we can avoid court yeah. because there's different ways that we can sometimes avoid court hearings. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the best solution. Or, you know, maybe the solution is, you know, just giving a really thorough explanation of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's acknowledging that, yeah, that might definitely happen. How are we going to work with Yes. What about you? How have you handled instances where a client might be concerned? So my clients, one of the concerns that can pop up is I represent, I don't, you know, depending on the time period, it quite a few clients at any given time who speak Spanish versus speak English. And they are, you know, if you are entitled to a court translator and certain, you know, many times that is no problem, smooth, 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 no problem. But every now and then there are the, we'll say the person in the position of power, which, you know, maybe a judge, it might be a trustee who are not thrilled by the addition of a translator to a hearing because it, the the reality is that when there is a translator it takes more time because you know yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons you that's you, just how translation yes. works so it does hold things up and i do you know i have noticed again some people who get a little huffy when they realize that there's going to be a translator and that does not make my clients less nervous about being there. And so I just tell my clients ahead of time, like, you know, it's luck of the draw, what's, you know, who we're assigned to, at least in some cases. And sometimes people aren't super enthusiastic about the translator, but guess what? You're entitled to one under the law. I'm going to be there with you. We're going to get through this. It's going to go great. So you know, I'm sorry that this might happen. I'm sorry if you're nervous. And then the other thing that I had come up to is that the translators, um, depending on the case, there there can be issues with them honestly mistranslating, either based on, you know, like the type of like the area of the world that my client's um, Spanish is from versus a translator. Yeah. And so that can also kind of make clients anxious, especially, you know, when the translator's mistranslating and then, you know, my client might have a decent, you know, I have clients who speak English or understand English pretty well, but just aren't a hundred percent confident in going to, you know, a legal proceeding and depending on their ability to hundred percent understand it. So they want the translator there, but then if they realize the translator isn't, really translating exactly what they said in the right way that can be frustrating for them as well and then sometimes you know if they're trying to tell the translator or correct what the translator said again the person in the position of power will sometimes get upset because they are interrupting is what you know you know let them talk is what i have heard and that's actually very distressing for someone because they don't you know, if if you are nervous already about this and then you feel like maybe you're being misinterpreted, that is not great, you know. So I think yeah. that in general, this isn't like a great solution, but this is my 
idealist solution is that we all could be a lot more patient. You know, if there's, you know, know that, yep, there's going to be an interpreter or a translator. It might take some more time and there might be some mishaps <laughs> that might need to be corrected. Yeah, I would say when I've had either to request the use of a translator or, you know, the other party mm-hmm. has requested a translator, I have had experiences where the person in power is, like you have described, mm-hmm. very kind of short <laughs> and like, they seem to be insulted, and then I'll tell my client, like, don't yeah. worry, that wasn't. This isn't about like you. This person just like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've seen them act that yes. way, even when there aren't yes. translators or interpreters in the room, but it's just, you know, not understanding a, a question mm-hmm. they're asking or something like that, you know, to kind yeah. of help them. And I have also had instances where the person in power Mm -hmm. is just fantastic and you know has has told me as the attorney hey i am watching the the interpreter try and keep up Uh with you attorney you need to slow down and kind of check me and so which is good like Mm -hmm. that's that's what they should do and so i i think that it it kind of depends on the person in power's own bias (laughs) Whether they're and also if they're at home, um, yeah, if they are a cranky person outside of this or not, too, <laughs> you know, yeah, yep, right, for sure, right, which doesn't really necessarily no. help, you know, when you're feeling when you're feeling like you're mm-hmm. not being able to share your story or or your voice is being taken a hundred percent, um, to know that the person is kind of a jerk no matter what, but. It's another area that could be improved upon. Yes. What I know that you practice probate law as well. Are there any biases that you notice in the area of probate? So I think one thing to kind of keep in mind is there's a couple of kind of thresholds that are needed to met be met before a probate is even filed Mm -hmm. because not all estates need to go through probate. And sometimes that's done intentionally. So like drafting an estate plan, people are very intentional about trying to avoid Uh probate. Although probate in Minnesota is not a bad thing. I'll just put that plug in there right now. (laughs) But there are certain things. So probate, the whole idea is to be transferring things that are in in the deceased person's name alone Mm -hmm. out. But they have to have like a financial estate that's worth more than 75000 And not everyone has so that. So that's kind of like a socioeconomic divide. they have to have real estate. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Or they have to have real estate. Um, even if they don't meet that $75,000 threshold, you know, they have to have real estate. And real estate is not an option for everyone for any number mm-hmm. of reasons. Whether they're, you know, unable to get a mortgage or there's, you know, a felony record or there's a lack of availability or, you know, they didn't have parents to help them with a down payment, Mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. And so, you know, sometimes I see probate at its kind of very core is something that that isn't available to everyone and some people would say hey that's a good thing yeah (laughs) probate you don't need probate and sometimes that is helpful because it it makes things go quicker if you don't have to have a probate 
but I think kind of bringing up that those those are the thresholds to even file a probate is something to think about. I also know that sometimes I've had conversations with potential clients about different you know documents or procedures and they say, well, why would I do that? <laughs> they won't even believe me oh. or they won't even follow this document uh-huh. or, you know, I think that there's also a level of distrust of different institutions. So whether it's, you know, yeah. the educational institution mm-hmm. or the judicial institution or the healthcare institution mm-hmm. that, you know, those areas are just not being utilized for very good reasons because, you know, my clients have faced different discriminatory practices in those different institutions in the past. So, yeah, you know, that is kind of a silly thing. Why should I why should I believe this now when it hasn't ever worked yeah. for me in the past? So kind of, you know, because of the discrimination in the system and people's experiences with that, it makes it kind of leads to some people just completely distrusting those institutions in the system based on their past experiences? Is that kind of what you notice? Yeah. I think we could even do like a whole episode on that topic. But I think that that absolutely, that level of distrust exists for very good reason. Mm -hmm. You know, those experiences absolutely did happen and shouldn't be like mitigated just because it didn't happen to me or it didn't happen to my friend or whatever the case may be. Thanks for listening today. You can find Claire's website.